Morning, folks. Uh, glad you're here today. We get to start a new series, as the screen implies, on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll be going for a while. We're going to have a break in the middle next year and do another series. But basically, um, up till Easter next year, we're going to do all of Luke's Gospel. And it's been time to kind of say that Christmas is in the right spot and Easter is in the right spot in the series. So that was very clever of us, wasn't it? Well, not really. But anyway, it made sense. Um, friends, how about I um, pray for us as we engage with God's Word together? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you'd help us to concentrate, that we would uh, learn from it, and we pray that we would learn uh, to eagerly await the coming of our Lord Jesus and the great salvation he's going to bring. Amen. Uh, I've just prayed it. Um, waiting, yeah. It's, uh, our society's turned it into one of the worst things that can happen to you. You have to wait. Uh, things have sped up in our society a lot. Having to wait is a really bad thing. It's a sign something has to be fixed Something has to be changed because waiting isn't right anymore. So if you're waiting for your computer, it's time to get a new one. If you're waiting for your phone to load the app, it's time to get a new one. If you're waiting for your th- food in drive through for more than 90 seconds, it's time to go to a different restaurant. Uh, everything has to be fast now, doesn't it? Like the, it's, it's how our societies happen. And we feel almost an irrational hatred of being stuck in traffic because waiting is bad. Uh, it's just society sped up. And you notice when you go to more backward societies like New Zealand and things are slower... Um, it's, sorry, I'm just going to alienate certain people in the room at this point. Our society sped up a lot. Waiting's a really, really bad thing. There's lots of trivial examples of it. I mean, I can't just look at something and enjoy it now and wait to tell my friend later. I get my phone out and put it on Facebook so I can tell all my friends at once if they care about the funny dog I saw or whatever it was. Um, people expect to do things now. Um, and it's easy as a Christian, here's the serious point, to lose uh, perspective on the fact that waiting well is of the essence of Christianity. Waiting well. It's right in the middle of it. Uh, Christians are people who faithfully wait on God to bring the salvation he's promised. It's been the common common experience of God's people for the last 4,000 years. The normal experience of Christian people, of believers in God's promises, has been waiting on God to bring the things he's promised. Because it started with Abraham in like 1800 B.C., and he died waiting, and his kids died waiting, and they went to Egypt, and they waited generations to leave. And the, the, God's plans unfold gradually as we head towards finding out God's uh, answers in Jesus. And so most people's experience in the Bible wasn't experiencing prophets and miracles and signs and wonders and all the amazing stuff. Most people's experience was just normal, average life, doing your job, having kids, trying to teach them to know God, pray to him, obey him and waiting for God to bring these great things he's promised in the future. And there's high points in it, but they're the exceptions. Most people didn't experience the high moments because they happened lifetimes in between them sometimes, or quite often. It's not constant action. God's experience through the ages is more like watching cricket. It takes a long time for something to happen. That's why Ian shared a story from 2003, because that's the last time something happened in cricket. But, you see... But that's what Christianity's like. You can go lifetimes and nothing happens. You sit there waiting patiently, eagerly waiting the one story you have that's glorious. And some people get to experience. See, the average faithful believer in the Bible, friends, isn't the famous hero. It's the average faithful believer obediently waiting, serving God as best they can. Uh, and they're the sorts of people we're reading about today. And there's lots of friends, there's lots of experiences in life. The point isn't the experience. The point is the thing at the end of it. And all your kids know that because it's nearly Christmas time and they know the point of having presents under a tree isn't there being presents under the tree. The point is they get to open them soon. There's lots of things like that. The point of being engaged isn't to be engaged. 
It's to be married. <laughs> it's to get to the point at the end of it. Somebody who wants to be engaged forever hasn't understood what it's all about. Nobody wants to be pregnant forever. In case you're wondering, I, I get, see sometimes women get to the end of the pregnancy like, get it out, get it out. It's, it's, it's designed to actually get to a different point. The point of pregnancy is a baby. The point of being engaged is marriage. The point of Christmas presents under a tree is Christmas Day they get opened. The point is at the end of it. The point of being a Christian is at the end of it. It's not now. Fundamentally, we're waiting. The thing that we're waiting for is Jesus to return, bring the resurrection, bring eternal life, bring the new creation. We look forward to it because the real deal, I don't want this to last forever. I actually want the day to come. And that's been the experience of God's people through the ages. Normal Christianity is about waiting well. Now, friends, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke today and for a little while. And the Gospel of Luke's really exciting because it's one of those high points. It's faithful believers waiting and then it happened. And they weren't, they weren't expecting it. Uh, it happened in a more dramatic, remarkable way than they could have imagined. And the people who it happened to couldn't believe it was happening. God's promises were being fulfilled. And so we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. It's a serious historical record of Jesus. Um, it's also not just raw historical facts. They're actually trying to teach us the point of Jesus. And the point there is in verse 1 of Luke, if you've got it open. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke's going to talk to you about lots of things that really happened in history. But he doesn't just want you to know with a sort of historical interest this happened. That's interest. Some people find history interesting for its own sake. But there's actually a point to it. It's practical. It's got to do with these things that happened are in fulfilment of what God's been promising for millennia. Or however you pronounce that word. They've been fulfilled among us. It's the thing the Old Testament believers are waiting for. And so as we read Luke, you'll find them keep on saying things like, it's necessary that this should happen. It means the Bible promised this, so it's going to happen. Or this must be fulfilled because God promised it in the the Old Testament. Jesus will keep saying that because this is the day where Jesus has come to save and heal. And we get to learn who the Saviour is and how great he is and learn facets of salvation we've never thought of before. I I hope you're excited. I think this is going to be an exciting series. Uh, let's just have a look at this. Uh, I'm going to call it the introduction, the prologue, uh, just quickly. I don't want to concentrate on this because it's, it's not really the main point of the sermon. But chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, uh, it just says that, yeah, the things that have been fulfilled among us, just listen to carefully. It's a historical record, right? Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I, I myself have carefully investigated... Everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. He wants people to know certainty. What sort of certainty? He wants you to know that these things really happened. It's really important. Um, Christianity's got to do with history. Uh, without history, Christianity doesn't exist. It's not a philosophy that happened in somebody's head. And the Jesus recorded in the Gospels is the real Jesus of history. He's not some legendary figure hiding behind, you know, exaggeration and layers of speculation and and bedtime stories. This guy, Luke, talked to the people who saw saw Jesus. He's talked to the people who were healed. It's extraordinary stuff. It's real history that we saw. So he uses the word eyewitnesses, as as in he was not satisfied to talk to anybody who didn't have first-hand knowledge of Jesus, not interested in what they had to say. It's not a good source. No secondary sources. It says they were eyewitnesses from the first. What that means is, isn't just that they happen to be in a crowd, and, oh, look, Jesus did something. I should tell somebody about that. He's talking people who were there from the beginning. 
who understood the ins and outs of Jesus' ministry, who sat as Jesus explained what he was about and got to ask him questions. They had the broadest range of experience with Jesus. And by the time it says servants of the word, it's pretty clear that he's probably mostly talking about the apostles is who he talked to. Because they were the ones who were there from the beginning, who were personally trained by Jesus to uh, pass on his message. And so as you read the Gospels, if you've been a Christian for a while, you just take this for granted. It's amazing. You read it and it's real places and it's real people and rulers we know of. And he uses names of specific people that you've never heard of because Jesus met real people and they had names. And so they wrote it down. It's real history. It's really worth taking that aboard occasionally and going, this stuff really happened. And that's really important because Christianity is testable, real, historic, public events. And if those testable, real, historic, public events didn't happen, then Christianity is nonsense. And so that's where people sometimes attack us. And so we need to have a bit of an understanding of that sort of thing. Uh, We didn't do the Apostles' Creed this morning, um, but many of you will know it. Um, Just next time you read the Apostles' Creed, just notice it's not a big philosophical, theoretical thing. It's a story. It's history. I believe in Jesus Christ, that he really was born incarnate of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he rose from the dead on the third It's It's telling us a history. A creed is our history of Jesus. Well, it's, it's so weird, isn't it? It mentions Pontius Pilate. For millennia, Christians have said the name of a small-time Roman governor in a backwater who wasn't even a Christian. Why? Because that specific day where Pilate gave over the order to execute Jesus is at the centre of our faith. And if that day didn't happen, then we don't have a faith. I just find it amazing that a nobody like that is said in a creed every week for the last 2,000 years. Well, it's probably more like 1,700 since that was written, but anyway, you get my point. How we have access to this history, eyewitnesses, trained, studied, informed, prepared for the task, people who knew what they were talking about. Friends, I want to just talk for a minute about a thing called apologetics. Um, apologetics is its not about giving an apology. It really just means to make a defence, to make a defence for your faith. It's, it's just a classical term for that. Um, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Be ready to give an answer. It doesn't mean you need to know everything, but it needs you to know you mean. It means you need to know some things and you need to have a growing understanding of Christianity. That's the norm. The first thing it means is a growing understanding of the Bible. I can think of uh, no better training for evangelism and telling other people about Jesus and answering their questions than knowing the Bible really well. There's nothing better. Other things are really useful, but that's the main thing. And I wouldn't trade that in for anything. But at some point, it's also worth getting to know some of the many reasons Christianity is historically credible. There's a million things we can talk about, so let me just pick one for the sake of it. And um, Here's some ancient sources. Um, so we know, basically the question is, um, how do you know we have good sources, maybe we've got eyewitnesses? How do you know that they actually wrote it and we've got the right documents and that sort of thing? Um, here's a chart of some ancient sources that are all very impressive ancient sources. Um, so the one at the bottom, Aristotle's writings, I'm not sure which ones actually, um, but because there are more than one. Um, But he uh, wrote between 384 and 322 BC. The earliest copy available that we have of his writings is 1100 AD. That means there's 1400 years passed between when he wrote it to the actual physical copies that we have when they were copied. And so there was a stream of copy upon copy between those times. But that doesn't actually bother historians, you know. That's not a bad thing because, you see, we've got 49 copies of Aristotle's works to compare to each other and see if people made a mistake copying and we can be pretty sure we know what Aristotle taught. 
Pretty sure. Like, it's, it's, it's a really strong historical source. Um, the best ancient source, besides the Bible, is uh, Homer's Iliad, which you can see there, 900 BC, earliest copy of 400. Uh, time spans 500 years. We've got nearly 650 copies of the thing. Uh, we know what Homer thought. Uh, we don't doubt that. But you're compared to the New Testament. You're not even comparing. Like, uh, we just have so much documentary evidence. We know what the original authors said. In fact, I heard the other day there's a really exciting manuscript that hasn't been published yet. But I want to know. It's, like it's, it's probably one of the earliest ones we have, um, which is just very exciting. But anyway, <laughs> this stuff was written between uh, 40 to 100 AD, the lifetime of the apostles. The earliest copy we have is 125 AD. That's about to get earlier. So we're talking about 25 years, maybe 50 years. So it wasn't very long. The, the oldest copy we have is almost the lifetime of the apostles. And when you've got nearly 25,000 copies of the things, bits of paper to compare to each other, we know what the New Testament said at the beginning. It's, it's just extraordinary documentary evidence. And there's all sorts of stuff. Like You can talk about that sort of stuff all the time. There's lots of, lots of different issues involved. Another one. Resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing in Christianity, right? Well, you get books like this. Look how thick they are. Like these are the historical, the, the serious academic scholarship on the resurrection of Jesus. This one's about the approach to establish the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact. Um, he's another one that does the same sort of thing. But it's just it's serious academic scholarship because Christians have always been interested in history because it's real and we can show it's real. We have really impressive historical evidence that Christianity is real and it really happened. I don't want you to read these books. You, know, you can, Annette. If you read one of them, I'll read the other one. I've, I'm halfway through one of them. The other one I've flicked. Um, but it's worth being aware of some of this stuff because people ask you some basic questions. This one's great. Um, the case for Christ is a reporter talking to a bunch of these Bible nerds and scholars and stuff and just, saying, just doing interviews and saying, so what confidence do you have in Jesus? Why, why do you think the sources are accurate? All that sort of stuff. It's really easy to read. It's like interview reporter style. Five bucks, bookshop, go for it. Um, but seriously, I don't care about you buying books. I just care that you be equipped to give a reason for the hope you have and to answer people's questions. Um, Christianity is real. It's, it's actually really impressive, the uh, historical evidence for it. Um, and it's worth talking to people about. But anyway, uh, there's things that I actually want to talk about in the text. So <laughs> chapter 1, verse 5. Back to Luke's Gospel. The year's about 4 BC. We're talking about some real specific people who lived in a real place at a real time. Chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, so they were of good stock. They were of a good priestly family. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Zechariah and Elizabeth were ordinary Israelites waiting for the coming of the Saviour. They were faithful Israelites. They worked, they prayed, they served God as best they could, and they just got on with life and tried to deal with the troubles that were thrown in them as best they could. And their troubles were fairly substantial. They couldn't have children, which is a great pain and sorrow. And they got to old age and they'd kind of given up on the idea. Um, they were well-respected in the community, I take it. Um, they were of a good lineage, so they probably were respected, but they were worth respecting because they were very godly people. They lived God's way. That's what it says. They were righteous in the sight of God. It's extraordinary. They lived in a way that pleased God, is all that means. They, they lived his way, obedient, prayerful. You'd like them. 
Um, they lived away from Jerusalem where the temple was, but um, Zechariah's job was at the temple, and so he had a shift sort of twice a year for one week where he'd go travel to Jerusalem, do his one-week shift and come home and do other things, I suppose. I'm not really sure. Uh, whenever his priestly division was rostered on, he'd, he'd head over there. I don't think they'd ever have experienced a miracle or anything like that. But something fairly extraordinary happened on this particular trip, and that's the ordinary thing. Uh, he was selected to offer incense at the temple. Um, there were probably 18,000 priests to choose from, and so they cast lots to see who would do it. Um, and he was selected, and it's probably the height of his priestly career, basically, that he was selected to do this thing on this day. It's a fairly unique moment for him. Now, what's all this incense offering and all that? Well, if you remember our um, series in Exodus, this thing's called the tabernacle. It's a symbol that God lives among his people. Um, in the middle of it, there's this special room. I've got a laser in this thing. Is it the middle one, isn't it? So there's these rooms in the middle of it. This one here is called the holy place. That's where priests do some things, and there's an altar there called the incense altar that Zechariah is going to offer incense on. Um, but it's really special because it is the closest point in God's symbolic house among Israel to this thing where the Ark of the Covenant is, the most holy place, and nobody really goes in there. Um, but for Zechariah to have this role would mean he'd be uh, doing ministry for Israel as close as God as it gets on this particular day. So it was a pretty exciting day for him. Of course, they weren't in this thing at the time because... Um, they'd got to Israel, they'd settled, they'd built a temple, they'd had the temple destroyed and got in exile, they'd come back, they'd rebuilt it, and then Herod the Great extended the temple so it matched the size of his ego and it looked something like that. Um, it's exactly the same function, it's the same sort of shape and layout. Um, you can see um, that courtyard there is the big courtyard, so you can see they're sacrificing animals in there, and this big, big structure here is that middle two-section two tent that was in the middle of the tabernacle. And so if you look in the middle of that, there's the room we're talking about. And, um, yeah, Alec Garan's model is better than mine. But anyway, uh, don't know. Crazy trying to make this thing. Um, but there's the incense altar. And there's the right side of the altar that we're about to, about to hear about. Why incense? Incense is a symbol for prayer. Zechariah goes in and offers incense on the altar whilst outside the rest of the priests pray. And it's a symbol because symbolically it's saying our prayers are reaching God's ears. This is where God lives. I go and do the incense. That's just affirming to us God hears our prayers. And so that happened every morning and evening. It was a normal part of their expression of um, devotion to God. Now, friends, let's just pause there for a moment before we move on. Um, because this, this text is actually full of allusions that I just want us to pick up a bit on. Um, a lot of texts and shows and comics and all sorts of things are, are a bit like this. Um, there's more meaning than just is on the surface. I'll show some examples. Um, not all the meanings on the surface in these things. So you see this one and somebody goes, why is this funny? All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. Um, the meaning's not on the surface. If you don't know that particular song, you don't get it. Like, it's just, you try and explain to somebody, they go, that's a joke for a seven-year-old. Like, the reindeer shot them. What's funny about, it's a song, anyway. But do you know what I mean? It's actually appealing to something else. And if you don't know the something else, you don't really get the thing you're looking at. Right? Here's a more complicated one. That's actually three stories combined. And if you haven't seen all three, you don't get it. So I take it everybody recognises Batman, whose name is Bruce Wayne, and that's why Darth Vader's calling him Wayne. And we know Darth Vader's from Star Wars. So there's two texts, two stories that you're supposed to know and import the meaning from into this understanding this one. There's actually a third one. It's Wayne's World. If you don't know what Wayne's World is, it means you're culturally uh, superior to the rest of us. 
I, I suspect, because it wasn't much of a movie. But um, <laughs> I did enjoy it, but I wasn't that old at the time. Um, but they'd say, party on Wayne, party on Garth, and they'd have an electric guitar and drumsticks, and it was their TV show. And so it's combining all three things together, and if you don't see all three, you don't get it right. Okay? Now, this narrative, Luke 1 to 2, is like this. They keep saying things that you'll just... If, if you know the stories from the Old Testament, you go, wait a minute, like that, I've heard that before. And there's so many details combined in complex ways. And so if you know the uh, things behind it, basically it just fills it with more meaning. You can actually read this and understand it perfectly well. Like It's not like this where you, you get it or you don't. You can get this without understanding the Old Testament bit, but it just enriches the whole thing. Um, so like in issues of style, you read this, I'm told, in Greek, and you read 1 Samuel in Greek, and it sounds like it's a continuation of the same story. It sounds like Old Testament is continuing in this story, just the way it's been written, the style, the things in it. Um, There's a temple, there's the customs from 1 Samuel. Israel's portrayed as functioning as a nation, waiting for the next step in God's plan. It's the Old Testament story continued. And when you hear of a woman who can't have children, that's pretty familiar. That's happened more than once. In fact... In the Old Testament, God keeps doing his work through women who can't have children. The mums of half the patriarchs couldn't have children before they had that that boy. I mean, so Sarah had Isaac, Rebecca had Jacob, Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin. These women all told they couldn't have children, but they were all key figures in God's plan. Samson's mum couldn't have children. Hannah, the mum of the prophet Samuel, all really key people in God's plan. And you read this and go, Elizabeth couldn't have children. Oh, wait a minute. God's up to something here. As soon as he's narrating that, it must be worth something. Not only is she going to get pregnant, but her son's going to play a crucial role in God's plans to save Israel. So back to Zechariah in the temple, is going to offer incense on the altar, faithful Israelite, waiting for the plan of God's day of salvation. He goes inside, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Naturally enough. I mean, how would you respond to that? It's a bit much for an old guy. He's a bit... <laughs> I remember years ago, I went into a block at Campbelltown Uni and the door was ajar and there was a snake right there thrashing against the glass and my body just went in autopilot and I was standing here and I didn't tell my body to go there, but it did. Like you just, how did you respond to this? There's an angel standing right next to that altar. I think it would have, yeah, that spot in the temple. Uh, I take it he's not usually here when other people offer incense. Must have been very startled. Well, it says he was terrified. It's on the right side of the altar. It, it signifies that it's probably a significant angel. I don't know if it's kind of got a God's right-hand angel vibe, but we knew that this angel is that anyway. But the angel gives John assurance, verse 13. The angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on uh, before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Um, That's, in case you're wondering, more loaded than the Wayne's World comic. Uh, I counted eight or nine Old Testament allusions and that sort of short little speech. I'm not going to give you one more. Um, and it's not because I'm extra smart or something. I can read books and people do this hard work. Um, some of them I picked up. Um, immediately you go, God names this kid, John. Um, that's only happened a handful of times in the Bible and they were always key leaders. Abraham, Isaac, Israel. That's about it. Always key leaders. 
It's confirmed he's going to be great in God's sight. But then there's this startling promise. He's going to have the Holy Spirit from before he's born. That's unique. I don't think there's anywhere else in the Bible you get that. Um, He's at least going to be the equivalent prophet of Isaiah or Ezekiel or something like that. But he seems to be greater. Uh, And as the passage goes on and the Holy Spirit keeps coming out more and more, it keeps alluding back to the Old Testament. Remember, God has promised a day when the Holy Spirit would work really powerful in bringing salvation to God's people. And you start wondering, what's going on here? But the main illusion is the one at the end, where in verse 17, the thing about going back to the heart uh, in the spirit of power and Elijah to turn the hearts of parents and so on. Um, it's an illusion to a guy called Elijah, who's a prophet of Israel, regarded as a very, very great prophet. Basically, he told his entire society, you're idolaters, you serve the real God again, and they did. Um, well, for a little while, some of them. Um, and the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, ends with this promise in, in Malachi. I think we've got it here. Yep. This is the last verses in the Old Testament. It says... Before the end of the world, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Familiar. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, so he will bring reconciliation to Israel, or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. You notice in verse 17 of Luke there, he's actually added a bit to the end, which is from Isaiah 40. So he's grabbing all these bits from the Old Testament and pulling them together. What's Isaiah 40? It's the promised day of salvation that Isaiah was promising would come one day. Elijah is the prophet that precedes the great day when God will save the world. He's come to prepare the way. He's this Elijah prophet who happens before the end of the world to prepare the way for God's king who will save the world. That's a bit much for an old priest to take. Uh, he's, he's not real convinced. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can this be? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's a decent question, although it is an angel of God speaking to him. And I think the next thing the angel says scares the pants off him because uh, once you recognise how significant it is, verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Uh, here's how Zechariah, I think, heard that. Um, I'm the angel of Daniel 8-9 to and I've been sent to tell you that Isaiah 40 is happening. I, th- I think that's how he heard it. But see, it's about knowing the illusion. It's like the Wayne's World comic. If you get the, the connections, you, you get what he's saying, and I think it scared the pants off him. Uh, those two passages. So Daniel chapter 8 was our first reading, the really weird one, right? Daniel has a vision. There's basically in all Daniel's visions, there's monsters doing things and being scary and destroying things. Um, and they're usually uh, oppressive world leaders and empires um, rising and falling and that sort of thing and opposing God and opposing God's people. And Daniel 8, Daniel didn't understand the vision, and so God sends an angel called Gabriel. It's the first mention of it in the Bible. And Gabriel goes up to Daniel and explains a vision to him. And he says, this vision is about the end of time. And he interprets the vision. There's evil rulers in history who will attack God's people. They'll be destroyed by this prince of princes, whoever that is. When will this be, Gabriel? When will it be? When, when's this great day going to happen? Daniel asks. And Gabriel says, seal it up. It's not for your era. It's going to be a lot of lifetimes of waiting before this happens. It's not for your day. And Daniel's broken and appalled. I, Daniel, worn out, was exhausted for several days. He's, he's just describing, he went into depression by the amount of hard waiting they would have to do before this time came. Through his angel Gabriel, God had promised a solution to all the problems of the world, but it wouldn't occur within Daniel's lifetime. Now this same angel turns up in front of Zechariah and says, time's here. The time is today. It's about to start. Good news is the other thing he said. It's literally the word gospel. 
first appears in Isaiah 40, where Isaiah speaks about the future day of God's salvation that they're all waiting for. Listen to it. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on the high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That day of salvation has come, Zechariah. Zechariah won't believe it. And uh, he's given a fairly ironic, uh, I suppose, punishment for that, for a temporary one. Verse 20, And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until that day comes, because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And sure enough, he gets out of there. He's trying to explain to the other priests the amazing thing that's happened. And all he can do is sign language to them. And they know he's had a vision, but they don't know what, because he can't speak yet. But Elizabeth gets pregnant, and we're going to uh, skip the part of the text that's about um, John's more important cousin. We'll just leave it at that uh, for next week. And go to verse 57. Because John was born, and Zechariah can't speak still. A crowd of friends is very happy for them. Naturally enough, the town's gathered to have a look. Uh, it's all very friendly. They um, are delighted for the couple that they've got a son finally. It's wonderful. And naturally enough, they think he's going to carry on the family's name. There's only one name you can give that kid, Zechariah. Uh, it's not what they did. Uh, on the eighth day, verse 59, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. I think they thought she was undermined, taking advantage of her um, husband's mutinous. And they said, well, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. So they made signs to his father. Come on, you're going to let her do this to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. He's brought into God's plan. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. The day's come. Something's happening here. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what's this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Zechariah can now talk openly, but it doesn't stop at that. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gives God's interpretation of the whole thing. Um, It's split into two halves. We'll skip the first bit. That's only about Jesus. You know, it's it's very important. We're going to hear about Jesus next week. Basically, what the song is, the first half is saying is, the promised king, the son of David, who will rule forever, is about to be here. He'll win victory over our enemies for us. Come down to verse 76, and the second half is about John's role, which is what I just want to concentrate on at the end here. Baby John would have a particular role in relation to that great king. Uh, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High God. You'll go on before the Lord, prepare the way for him. What's that mean? To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. In New Life Anglican Church language, John's role is simply to speak clearly about Jesus. Have you heard that in our our four C's, connect, care, communicate, communicate the gospel, just speak clearly about Jesus. John's role in a unique time, because nobody else knows this yet, that the timing's the all-important thing about his greatness. He's able to point the finger at Jesus and say, that guy there, forgiveness of sins, salvation, tender mercy of God, get it there. It's the same role we can all have. 
See, friends, all Christian ministry is a bit like John's, at least. It's got that, that part to it. As in, at the end of the day, all we do is point the finger at Jesus and say everything, every, every promise of God is fulfilled in that guy. And you've got to get some of that. <laughs> you've got to get with that guy. That's where John's greatness came from. So he's called the greatest prophet of all time. That's because he was close to Jesus. It's a bit like at school, there's cool kids and then there's kids who are cool because they hang out with the cool kids. Jesus is really cool and John hangs out with the cool kid. Well, Jesus is really great. And John hangs out close to Jesus and says, this guy's great. You better listen to him. Friends, that's got to be our ministry at our church. Um, I just want to give you this thought. We need to constantly be evaluating our programs and saying, how does this make the name of Jesus big? Our carols event we're about to do is about promoting the name of Jesus publicly in our community and giving us opportunity to speak clearly about Jesus. And we don't have any sacred cows here. We actually want to keep evaluating everything we do, kids' ministry, barbecues, everything, and say, is this making the name of Jesus big? And we need to be able to do hard things. I I think it's the mark of a mature church that can go, well, we're willing to set things aside if there's something that does that better. Tell us how to do it best and we'll do it. Let's pitch in and get it done. The great missionary William Carey got it. He said, when he was dying, he said, when I'm gone, men achieved a great deal. People loved him. When I'm gone, speak less of Dr. Carey and speak more of Dr. Carey's saviour. He's got it. Jesus' name needs to be big. And if my name needs to be small to do that, then that's, that's how it goes. That's how I want it to happen. He's got it. But William Carey, John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're all just people faithfully waiting for God's salvation to come. Jesus is the thing they're waiting for. At verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared public to, publicly to Israel and they all waited for another three decades for the next step to happen. Friends, the basic shape of the Christian life is waiting. That's, that's what it's all about. We eagerly await the thing that's to come because the whole point of being a Christian isn't here yet. Jesus has won our salvation, but we await his second coming now where he'll apply it to all things. He'll raise us from the dead. He'll give us eternal life and welcome us into his kingdom. And to want now to last forever, to be satisfied with the here and now, misses the point of being a Christian. Long for that day. Let's uh, ask God to help us do that. And how about we thank him for this amazing uh, child Jesus who we're going to hear about more next week loving heavenly father we thank you that you uh, gave Zechariah and Elizabeth such awesome privileges in your plan to have uh, what a remarkable role to uh, be father of the greatest and mother of the greatest prophet Israel ever saw just because he was so close to Jesus he could just point his finger to him say very clearly that guy is where salvation is. I pray you'd give us the opportunity to do that as well, to speak clearly of Jesus too. We pray that we would have the great privilege of pointing uh, other people to Jesus in a way that's clear and meaningful to them and uh, where things like salvation and forgiveness and finding your tender mercy make a great deal of sense to them and they can see how it is actually what they're looking for in their heart of hearts. We're going to pray that our carols event and and, uh, various ministries we engage in would lift up the name of Jesus and make his name prominent in our community. Please help us to uh, make that our driving force in everything we do, our driving concern, and be willing to uh, chop and change things as it serves that end. Most of all, Father, we just want to thank you for the Lord Jesus and all the wonderful things he's done for us in assuring us of salvation 
And we thank you we've got such a wonderful, reliable, trustworthy Bible that we can know we really know him. In Jesus' name, amen.